Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. I'll read verses 1 through 9. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. I'm going to begin today a series of messages on worship. And there are two reasons for this, at least. One is that you were made to worship. It is our ultimate destiny. God created the universe to display his glory so that it would be seen and known and loved with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. That's why we exist. And the second reason is that it has been quite a few years since I preached on worship, and in those intervening years, hundreds of new people have come to Bethlehem, including uh, Chuck Stedham, a new worship leader, and we together need to forge afresh a common vision of what we're about on uh, Sunday morning in gathered worship and Monday morning in lived-out worship. And so for these two reasons, I want to take some weeks to work on this with you. Now, I had Randy read verse 9, in particular of Revelation 22, not because I'm going to do an extended exposition of it, but because I wanted you to hear the banner over this message in a simple two-word command, worship God. You see that? The angel said to John when he fell down at the angel's feet, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. That's what I want you to hear as we begin. Worship God. Don't worship angels. Worship God. Don't worship nothing. Worship God. Don't neglect God or despise God. Worship God. It's a very straightforward, plain, two-word 
commandment to lead into what I'm going to do, namely a broad overview of the New Testament worship. Now, I have a very particular angle on this because of what I've seen in the study over recent years about worship, and it's quite an amazing thing to me. I don't know if it will be to you or not, but what I have found in studying the New Testament understanding of worship is that there is in the New Testament a stunning degree of indifference toward worship as an outward ritual and an utterly radical intensification of worship as an inward experience. So indifference toward outward ritual to an amazing degree and intensification of inward experience to an amazing degree. And that's what I hope to show you in this little survey this morning. Now, let's start with a startling fact. If you do a survey of what the main word for worship is in the Old Testament, just do a concordance search, you find that the main word in Hebrew is hishtahava, it's translated worship usually, occurs it occurs 171 times in the Old Testament, and 164 of those 171 times, it is translated in the Greek Old Testament by proskuneo, so that when you want to study worship in the New Testament and you're looking for a key word in the Greek, you look up the word proskuneo. That was the word for worship in the Old Testament. And what you find is something absolutely amazing. You find that in the Gospels, that Greek word for worship occurs a lot, 26 times. It means basically to fall down before and, and reverence. And so people are running up and falling down in front of Jesus a lot in the Gospels. And it occurs a lot, 21 times, in the book of Revelation. And it is virtually absent from the epistles. One exception in 1 Corinthians 14, where the man comes in among them and falls down and confesses that God is in this place. And that's all for the epistles of Paul and Peter and James. Two instances in Hebrews, both of them Old Testament quotes or pictures of heaven, not worship on the earth. So it's fair to say that the Gospels, a very dense usage of the word worship, revelation, a very dense Usage of the word worship, epistles written to describe the church in this age, nothing. As far as the usage of this word goes, that's surprising to me. That's remarkable and begs for an explanation. Here's my attempt at an explanation. Jesus treated worship in his life and teaching in a way that transformed the way the early church thought about it. So that when it came time for them to begin to do it, as the gospel spread throughout the nations, they had a fundamentally different idea than was present in the Old Testament. Now, what is the change? What did Jesus do while he was here 
We'll come to John 4, 20 to 24 in a minute. That's a key text. But before we do that, ponder for a minute how Jesus related to the temple. Worship revolved around the temple in the Old Testament and the temple sacrifices. What did Jesus do and say with regard to the temple? Well, let's take a few examples. He wove a whip one time. And in Mark 11:17, he drove out the money changers. But instead of saying, you people are making it hard for them to offer right sacrifices here, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, when he erected himself as an unmistakable power in the middle of the temple, he said, this place is about communion with God in prayer. And not just for Jews, but for the nations. Now that should startle us and drive us into our hearts where prayer emerges rather than up toward the altar with goat in hand to do some external ritual. But that's not the main thing he did. The main thing he did was say things like this in talking about the temple. He said, Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. Meaning, I'm here. Something greater than the temple is here. And then he said, John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what do those two statements mean? Something greater than the temple is here. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Those two statements, together with other allusions, for example, in John 1, where he said he took on flesh and tabernacled, the word for the tabernacle in the Old Testament, tabernacled among us. All of these words of Jesus are meant to say the old localization of worship that focused on an external ritual in a building located in Jerusalem to which people come is over. And now the new temple, the new location is Jesus. If somebody asked you, what's the religious Mecca of Christianity? What would your answer be? Jesus, not Jerusalem. Not Grand Rapids or Minneapolis. It's Jesus. That's the point. I, in other words, he's saying, I am absolutely nullifying geography as essential in worship. It is not essential any longer. Something greater than the temple is here. Now let's go to John 4. This is the very familiar Crucial, crucial text on worship in the Gospels. And in John 4, you remember he's dealing with the woman at the well who's had five husbands and he's penetrating to the core of her sinfulness and rescuing her. She doesn't know it and so she's 
got her foot caught in a trap and doing everything she can to distract from the issue of adultery and says, so where should we worship? And Jesus is okay with that. Verse 20, he says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. This is her talking. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And this word worship here is that old familiar proskuneo, that fall down word. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, place is falling in significance. It's falling neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You're asking about which is it, the Samaritan way or the Jewish way, Samaria or Jerusalem? And he says, neither, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. What then? Verse 23. The hour is coming and now is. So with the coming of, of one who is greater than the temple, the future has arrived. The worship of heaven is coming. It's here. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father. Where? Not in this mountain or in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. He replaces two geographic words with true, with two heart head words. A heart word and a head word. So what's the location for worship? Jerusalem? No. Heart or spirit. Samaria? No. Head. Truth. This is what I meant earlier by a radical intensification of worship off of locality onto inward experience and reality. You shall worship in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to worship Him or to be His worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what Jesus is doing, and this is crucial to understand why this word is missing in the epistles. Jesus has taken that word, proskuneo, which meant literally fall down before. And he's saying, this word is inadequate because I am now creating a situation where there will be no place to fall down. There will be no shrines in which to get low in. There will, in fact, be no visible person for many years to whom you can run up and fall before. So this word is not helpful anymore. And if you wonder, how come it shows up again in Revelation? It's real simple. Revelation pictures heaven and there he is. You can run up and fall down in front of Jesus in heaven. You can't this morning. This building is absolutely inessential. This body of mine is absolutely inessential when it comes to worship in a New Testament understanding. And this is a glorious truth. Why? Tell me, missionaries, why this is a glorious truth. <laughs> what you going to meet in in Tarkpoima? Deep reasons for why Jesus did this. He loves the world. That's why he hates buildings. That's an overstatement. Buildings are no big deal. They are no big deal. In fact, they often 
get in the way and ruin churches. They are not churches, you know. You are the church. In spirit and in truth. In spirit means carried by the Holy Spirit, happening mainly in my spirit. Worship is carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it happens mainly deeply down in my being, my spirit. And in truth means worship is a response to true views of God, and it is shaped and guided by those true views. So truth is an essential component of worship and spiritual reality is an essential component of worship. And in the weeks to come, I'm going to ring those for all their worth until we have a mind as a church as to what we're doing on Sunday morning and what we should get up on Monday morning to do with regard to worship. Jesus said, Matthew 15:8. we'll come back to this more than once. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. When the heart is far from Jesus, worship is vain. That is non-existent, empty. Therefore, it is a heart issue. So that all the outward ritual that we create, and we have our ritual, preaching is one of them, Lord's Supper is one of them, worship team is one of them, choir is one of them, music, keyboard, songs, acapella, stand, sit, lift hands, all these things are outward forms of doing it. And they're not the essence. They are the clothing around the essence If this people's heart is far from me, in vain do they do these things. So the vital, defining, indispensable essence of worship is an internal heart reality, which I'm going to address next Sunday, asking, what is it? What's the essence of it? So why... Do all of Paul's letters, James, Peter, and John, and Hebrews say almost nothing about the forms of worship and virtually never use the word worship that was used in the Old Testament? It's because, I believe, Jesus came into the world to say, I'm going to turn this thing inside out. And I'm going to put all my stress on heart authenticity and reality so that as this gospel spreads and creates worshiping communities throughout the world, they can do it in their own language, in their own indigenous forms, and in their own kinds of buildings and won't have to have anything in the New Testament that cramps their style. I think that's the meaning of what he's done here. Now, to confirm this, if you go to the epistles of Paul and say, well, now, Paul, what is worship? And what about all those words for worship in the Old Testament? What about the sacrifices? And 
What about the offerings and what about the libations that were poured out? Any place for any of that? And Paul says, yeah. For example, he takes the next most common word for worship in the Old Testament, latruo, often translated serve like in Exodus 23, 24. You shall not worship their gods or serve them. He takes that word and he utterly spiritualizes it into something internal and then practical. For example, give you three or four instances. Romans 1, 9. I serve God in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel. I worship God in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel. My ministry is internal worship turned outward. That's why I call preaching expository exaltation. And Lord willing, we'll write a little book next March on preaching as worship, not after worship. Awful concept. Right, Chuck? That's why we hired him. Got a handle on these things. Preaching is part of worship. I am worshiping, believe it or not, right now. I love the God I'm talking about. It's just oozing out. And you happen to be listening to my worshipful speech, which I call preaching. Or Philippians 3, 3. Paul says that true Christians worship God in the spirit. Now, that word worship there is la truo. Worship God in the spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. Romans 12, 1. Here's one. We'll take a whole Sunday on this one, probably. Present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The body offered up to God in daily obedience is an outward expression of inward worship. So he says, sure, I've got use for those words in the Old Testament. It's what you do from nine to five at work. That's your latruo, your worship. Or take the sacrifice language of the Old Testament. That's a biggie. Where are all the goats, for goodness sakes? And where are the sheep and where are the doves? Today, where's the blood? Well, Hebrews 13, 15, he says that the praise and thanks of the lips is a sacrifice to God. The thanks of the lips is a sacrifice to God, the writer says. Paul says of his own ministry that it is a priestly service or worship to God. He calls the converts an acceptable offering in worship to God, Romans 15:16. He calls money, get this, he calls money sent from the Philippians to him on the mission field in Rome a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice to God. He calls his own death. He knows he's going to die in Rome. And he's going to bleed to death. He was killed by lions, we believe. And he called it in 2 Timothy 4, 6, 
a drink offering to God. So if you ask, well, what became of all the Old Testament libations and sacrifices and services of worship? The answer is they were transmuted into holiness of life in which our valuing of the worth of God in our spirits and our hearts is bent outward into lived out demonstrations of his value in the world. And that is what marks this age. The Old Testament was a come-see religion. So it all clustered around big, opulent palace and temple. The New Testament is a go-tell religion. And therefore, buildings are stripped down, lean, mean, mission machines. If they're done right, and we are released to worship among the nations and on the streets and among the business people downtown or in the classrooms. There is, in other words, a very, very radical deinstitutionalization, that's an awful word, and delocalization and deritualization in the New Testament. It is an amazing thing. So I conclude then this morning that there's a stunning indifference to worship as a form or a ritual or a localized event, just a remarkable indifference to it and silence about it in the epistles of Paul and James and Peter and Jude and Hebrews. And there is a radical intensification of worship as an inward, spiritual, authentic, heartfelt experience. And that begs now for a lot of unpacking in the weeks to come. What is that experience? How does it relate to what we do on Sunday morning? Why do we do these things? Why do we do it this way? How shall we do it? How does it relate to Monday morning? And here's the way I'd like us to close, as a kind of uh, capturing of a couple of things that we've seen. I didn't mention it, but in Colossians 3.16, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody with all your heart to the Lord, Always, and there's the operative word here that blows everything. <laughs> you say, oh, there's worship. There's, there's Sunday morning, right? It says, no. Always, always, tomorrow morning, this afternoon, small group, late at night, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. So singing is essential in the Christian life. That's brought over loud and clear from the Psalms, but not necessarily just here. So singing and sacrificing. Lord, you have shown us just a peek of how radically internal, intense, and universal is this experience for which we were created. 
And I pray that you would be our teacher now as we go and that you would teach us and create in us this experience of valuing you and counting you worthy and cherishing you and reveling in you and savoring you and delighting in you and loving you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And bring us back, I pray, to learn more next week. And in the meantime, grant us to live this experience in daily worship for people to see and know that you are our treasure. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.